the longer I live, the more I appreciate the blessing of my father in training me in discernment. Uh, he had four children, of which I was the oldest, and quite frequently we would have, uh, it was a common practice for us to have our meals together, and after dinner we would stay at the dinner table and perhaps sometimes even talk until we went to bed, discussing the issues of the day and being able to bring to bear the scriptures in knowing what to think and how to think biblically about those challenges that were present as we were growing up. And I'm so grateful for that because I see in a world where the more information we get, the less capable we are of figuring out what information can you trust and what can't you, that having that kind of training and discernment has helped me markedly in the decades since, and I'm so grateful for that. And as we look at the continuing advance of technology and the remarkable work in artificial intelligence, it generates all kinds of new challenges, doesn't it, in being able to figure out how do we discern truth from error. Now, we have a problem today where we will elevate experience over knowledge. Uh, and in that, I would suggest that America is becoming more and more like Europe. And so, just like Europe, we are dismissing Christianity on intellectual grounds. We're saying that Christianity is just a bunch of fables, and then, because we are spiritual creatures, we will grab for any spiritual port in a storm. So just like Europeans, we will, because we're spiritual beings, while we're abandoning Christianity, we jump for anything. And that are far less intellectually sustainable than Christianity would ever be, even defined at Christianity's worst. So, we have a rise in the use of tarot cards and fortune-telling and psychedelic drug experiences and Hindu and Buddhist meditation techniques and the worship of nature, which has become ubiquitous those of you that are kindergarten to second grade will wonder, what does ubiquitous mean? It means it's everywhere, okay? The worship of nature is everywhere rather than the Creator. The embracing of crystals and dream catchers. Today's Americans are every bit as superstitious, and I will put into quotes the word spiritual, as we have ever been but we are leaving behind Christianity, dismissing it as a bunch of fables, all the while embracing the oddest and the strangest pagan religious practices which have no basis in historical or any other kind of reality. Now, in answer to this, many Christian groups, and I'll use that word loosely, many Christian groups have made the effort to say, oh, you're looking for a transcendental religious experience, we can provide it for you. We have even weirder religious practices. So, things like the word faith movement where you name it and claim it, 
and therefore can manifest yourself into wealth and health, or holy roaring, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but this is a way in which we can express our domination over sin and Satan and creation by saying that in the name of the Lion of Judah, we roar out, and they have these practices where you have holy roaring. Or grave soaking. This is the practice where you would lay down on the grave of a famous Christian, and by laying down on the grave of a famous Christian, a portion of the Holy Spirit somehow sucks up out of the grave into you, and you have their Holy Spirit fullness. Or claims of gold dust appearing during the worship service, along with speaking in the ecstatic languages that are called tongues. These are all an attempt to conjole the young adults of this generation to say, hey, take another look at Christianity. We're just as weird as they are. Now, we shouldn't be against transcendental religious experience, should we? The question is, how can we have a transcendent religious experience with God and know, really know that we're encountering the true God? This is a critical question, not just for you as an individual, but as our church is seeking to be worshipers maturing in Christ, this is a crucial question for our entire body. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning then to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 40, and as we do so, we're going to be thinking about this issue of discernment as part of the importance of orderly worship. That is that we can have a transcendent experience with God when our minds are trained in discernment and in the practice of orderly worship. Now, we'll be looking at this whole text here, so I hope you have your phone or your Bible open to this text because we're going to make our way fairly quickly through these 35 verses. The first point that we should make is that musical instruments and military communication illustrate the superiority of prophecy over unknown languages. Paul is talking here in this chapter about the practice of tongues and, and the supernatural sign gift of prophecy, and we talked a lot about that last week, and particularly how we know that since the apostolic period has passed by, these sign gifts have also disappeared. But now what we're going to do is go back into the text and see how they should be practiced in the apostolic period. And Paul gives two illustrations to show the, the superiority of prophecy over unknown tongues. The first illustration is musical instruments. The second one is military communication. Verse 6, now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, 
who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Verse 6 tells us there's no benefit to the body if a person speaks in unknown languages. And he gives the first illustration in verse 7 of musical instruments. If you have a flute or a harp and the notes are not sounded clearly or distinctly, how can we know what the tune is? Distinct playing equals enjoyment and understanding. Indistinct playing is confusing and unenjoyable. And then in verse 8, he gives a second illustration. Now, again, it's a musical instrument, but this time it's with a military context in terms of military communication. He says, if a bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? If the bugle that is announcing where the troops should go and what they should do, if it's unclear or uncertain, what direction can that give to the military unit? So verses 9 through 11, it's important to know what someone is saying. If it's not intelligible, verse 9, how can one know what's said? It's just sounds in the air. Verses 10 and 11, there are lots of languages, but if I don't know the language, we're foreigners to one another. By the way, at the end of verse 10 where it says there are many different languages in the world and none is without meaning, I'm going to suggest to you that even the so-called ecstatic languages that are talked about here in chapters 12, 13, and 14, that they have some linguistic order to them. Otherwise, there would be no meaning communicated, and all language is designed to communicate meaning. If we don't know the language, we're foreigners to one another. So, verse 12, if you are truly eager for manifestations of the Spirit… And when he uses that phrase, what he really, it's, it's the same way of saying, if you're truly eager for transcendental religious experience, if you really are eager to encounter the living God, if you're interested in that, verse 12, strive to excel in building up the church. Now, this is radical. Because even mature Christians mess this up. We think of spiritual growth almost exclusively in personal terms. We think of our spiritual growth as, how am I doing? How am I growing in Christ? And that's not how Paul thinks. He's thinking in terms of the church, the maturity of the church, that in the context of community is how every individual grows and the whole body grows together. And so that's why he's saying, if you're eager for transcendental experiences with God, then what you should strive to do is to excel in playing your part in building up the church. Now, since intelligibility 
is so important to this transcendental Christian experience with God, we should seek intelligible worship. Look with me at verses 13 to 19. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So here in this section, Paul has something to say uh, for ourselves, for others, and for the Lord Jesus' church. Let's look at verses 13 to 15. This is for ourselves. For ourselves, we should seek to have minds that are fruitful both in praying and in singing. Do you see it there? He says, if I'm just doing it on my own, it's my mind is unfruitful and I'm going to pray with my mind. I'm going to sing praise with my mind also. By the way, this is why we should be discerning in the songs that we sing, that they have a theological alignment with the teaching of Scripture. So that's for ourselves. Verses 16 and 17, intelligibility in worship is important for others, especially those who don't know Jesus and are looking on and looking into the faith. They can't affirm what they don't understand. So if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anybody in a position of outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? You may be worshiping well, but the other fellow is lost. He's not built up at all. And then verses 18 and 19, intelligibility for the sake of the Lord Jesus' church. Paul could say that he was the king of unintelligible worship, the king of speaking in tongues. But he says he would gladly give all that up if it was an either-or choice between unknown languages and intelligible words. In fact, Paul's math is interesting here, isn't it? He says, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. We too easily seek spirit, personal experience as a measure of true spirituality. Notice in this section how Paul is talking about building up, and it's always about building up others, that the way to spiritual growth is by building others up. Secondly, we fail to see spiritual growth so often, we fail to see it in the context of the whole body of Christ. We think of our spiritual growth as something that's just me and my God, me and Jesus. Now, I don't mean to diminish the importance of personal encounters with God. What I mean to do is to advance, to elevate the importance of the body's connection to 
your personal spiritual growth and the entire growth of the body of Christ. Now, maturity in our thinking leads to maturity as worshipers. Paul's going to talk about not being childish. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Maturity in our thinking leads to maturity as worshipers. Paul says here in verses 20 to 22, don't be childish in your thinking because that leads to childish worship. Now, he hastens to add, be childlike in regard to evil. That is, don't try to know all about evil if you can help it, but you should be adults in how you think. Now, then he quotes something from, in verse 21, from Isaiah 28. And here, when he's talking about unbelievers in the first section here, he's talking about unbelieving Jews, okay? Unbelieving Israel was childish in thought and adult in evil. Go home and read the whole of Isaiah 28, and you will see just how childish Israel was in thought and just how horribly adult they were in evil. And so, tongues were a sign for unbelieving Israel to make the child grow up. And that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. Jews from all over the world were at Jerusalem on the festival of Shavuot, Feast of Weeks, and the apostles had the Holy Spirit come upon them and they spoke in other languages and everyone was hearing in their own language and they said, how is it that we hear each of us in our own language? And Peter got up and preached this amazing sermon and when, they get, when he gets done, they go, what, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And the idea is that unbelieving Israel heard these tongues and it drew them out of childishness into a faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that's why Paul could say in verse 22, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. He's talking about unbelieving Jews, unbelieving Israel. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, not for unbelieving Jews, but for believers, Jewish believers. It's no accident, then, that once the mystery of the church happens, see, this is before the church, this is the kind of the beginning of the church, the day of Pentecost. 
It's no accident then that once the mystery of Jew and Gentile together now as the church becomes clear, the sign gifts disappear. So that Jew and Gentile together, the whole structure is becoming a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, Ephesians 2. That the mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is, people from every tongue and language and nation, Jewish and non-Jewish, are now joined together members of the same body. And so, beginning at verse 23, we have a movement away from just Jewish believers and unbelievers and the signs to them. Now in verse 23, he's going to talk about the whole of Jew and Gentile together. And the reason I say that is look at the word whole there. If therefore the whole church comes together. Now that's Jew and Gentile. And at Corinth, that means more Gentiles than Jews because at Corinth there were way more Gentiles than there were Jews in the population. And if the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, these are Gentile outsiders now, Gentile unbelievers, will they not say you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, called to account by all. Now, there's something really interesting to me about verse 23. Outsiders, unbelievers entering the local assembly. This assumes that the believers are inviting guests to come to their large group worship. And this likewise assumes that those folks come. That the regular weekly aspect is that people are inviting and people are coming. And Paul's saying here in the large group gathering, if everybody is speaking in tongues, what are the guests going to think? They're going to think wrongly of you. They're going to think wrongly of the faith. We should be aware of what our pattern of worship is communicating to our guests. It's not the most important thing, but it is important. How would the average Corinthian unbeliever react coming into the assembly, and everybody is speaking in tongues. Paul says they would conclude, you are out of your minds. There's one additional blessing to the gift of prophecy in verse 24, and that is that it can be understood by those who don't know Jesus. Do you see what happens here? It's not just one person who relates to the outsider, but all do. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he convicted, he's convicted by all. You see, when guests come to church, did you know that it's not just the person who invited them, that it's their job to engage them and to uh, help them along and to enter into relationship? It's the part of all of us to welcome the outsider and to engage them. And who knows but what our words may be the means by which they see that God is truly alive. Do you see what happens? Here's how the average Corinthian unbeliever reacts coming into the assembly and hearing the Word of God. He's called into account by all. He's convicted by all. That is, he's aware that things are not right with him. 
He's accountable to the one true God made known through Jesus Christ. Verse 25, the secrets of his heart are exposed. They, they come to a stark reality of who they are and what they've done. And then notice what happens. The response is that they become a worshiper. They fall on their face. They worship God and they declare God is truly among you. A transcendental worship experience by the body of Christ ministering to the guest. I want to ask you a question. Which of these two scenarios is more miraculous in your mind? The scenario where everybody is speaking in tongues at the same time or the scenario where guests come and they are encouraged and challenged by the Word of God, not just from one person, but by literally the entire body of Christ working in concert together, such a way that the person concludes, God is here, I am a sinner, I need to trust Jesus as my Savior, and falling on their face, they trust Christ. Which of those two is the more miraculous event? I submit to you, it is the salvation of any person who believes in Jesus. Orderly worship then reflects the nature of God, verse 26. Here Paul's gonna give the order of how things should happen in the apostolic church. As I mentioned, we believe that these sign gifts have disappeared, so this is not an order that we're following here at East White Oak any longer, but at the time, this is how Paul instructs that order in worship should happen. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation, let all things be done for what? Building up. Again, not individual personal experience, but building up of the body. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three, and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged." And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Orderly worship reflects the nature of God. Notice how in verse 26, all things are done for the building up of the saints to be worshipers. And so as for tongues, verses 27 and 28, two are at the most three, one at a time, someone must interpret if there's no one to interpret, keep silent, speak to yourself and to God. As for prophecy, verses 29 and 30, two or three should speak, others weigh carefully what is said. If a revelation comes, the first speaker should stop talking and you should take turns so that everyone is instructed and encouraged. And then verses 31 to 33 has to do with self-control. Self-control. Prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. It is not correct to say the Spirit just took over. We have control over the use of our gifts. The spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets themselves. In fact, the very nature of God should be reflected 
in how we worship. Disorderly worship would reflect poorly on God as a God of disorder. This is not so, and so neither should our worship be disorderly. God is not a God of confusion, but a God of, and the word here, I think he's using a little bit of a Hebraism, using a Hebrew background to this word. God's not a God of confusion, but a God of shalom, a God of peace. And the Hebrew word shalom means everything is in its proper order. Everything is in its right place. That the transcendental experiences that we have with God together in the body of Christ are done in the context of recognizing the amazing character and nature of God. A God of complete order and everything in its right place. Now we come to a section that if we weren't doing expositional preaching through the book of, the, of 1 Corinthians, you would be strongly tempted to skip it, as you will see when I read it. But we're talking here about personal desires, and that personal desires are not the essential of worship. What my personal desire is, what your personal desire is, is not as important as something else in terms of the essential of worship. We'll find out what that is in just a second as I read it. Verse 33, the second half of the verse. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. My desires are not more important than order in the church and the right worship of God. And now we come to verse 34, women keeping silent, not permitted to speak in submission as the law also verifies or says, if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. It's shameful for a woman to speak in church. I'm tempted to say, let's all pray the benediction and go away. Um, but let me explain what I think it means. You have to understand that uh, in Judaism, which is where Christianity came in terms of its worship practices, men and women were seated together or stood separated by gender. Men were in one section, women were another. When I attended the great synagogue in Jerusalem, that's what it's called, the great synagogue. <laughs> it wouldn't be, it'd be great, it's just called the great East White Oak Bible Church. Um, there, all the men were on the, on the main floor, and all of the women sat or, or, or stood in the, in the balcony all around. And so I want you to get this picture in your mind that here's a church that's not in order, everybody's speaking in tongues at once, and now what's happening is the women are shouting from their section uh, and perhaps shouting in tongues or perhaps shouting questions about what's being prophesied and what's going on and all of this and shouting above the fray, demanding attention while men are backing away from leadership. And that's the context, I think, in which Paul is describing this situation. I don't think this is an absolute prohibition. In other words, I don't think it's saying 
Women should keep silent in churches for all time and never speak at all. Uh, and that if they have anything to say, they should go home and ask their husbands about it. And the reason why I don't think that's true is if you go back to chapter 11, verse 5, he's talking about head coverings, which is another controversy. But he says in verse 5, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. He's talking about worship practices in the church, and he's assuming that women pray and prophesy in the church. So I don't think even in Paul's situation that he's talking about this in an absolute or categorical way, but rather I think he's talking about a specific situation in the disorder and the confusion of the worship practices of the church at Corinth. Uh, There appears in the church at Corinth a demandingness on the part of the Corinthian church women to be at the forefront in the position of controlling worship. And Paul is pointing out that that's not how women should function in the church's worship. And rather than jumping in on the confusion that's happening, Paul instructs the women to keep silent, to ask their husbands at home what's going on at the moment is shameful. Now, defiance about worship is a bigger problem than we might imagine. Paul says in verse 36, was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones it has reached? Very easy for us to think about our spirituality, even as believers, in thinking about it only in individual terms. Or perhaps the most we can think about it is in collective terms, as in me and my wife, my son John, his wife, us four no more. (laughs) Um, Are you the only ones God's word has reached? There's a self-centeredness about our thinking about spiritual maturity, our thinking about transcendental experiences with God, I think about that particularly in the American church where we Americans can tend to think that the only really great stuff happening is in our own church or in our own country. We're not unique. God is up to something all over the world in amazing ways. And verses 37 and 38 tell us that this giftedness must submit to authority. Desires cannot be allowed to become defiance. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. He needs to submit to apostolic authority. If anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. So personal desires are not the essential of worship. And so during this time that Paul is writing here, he encourages people to desire to prophesy and not forbid the speaking of tongues, but keep two things in mind. One, love, chapter 13, is the greatest virtue, and it is one that outlasts tongues and prophecy. Where there are tongues, they will pass away. Where there's prophecy, it will pass away. Love never ends. Even where there are sign gifts, the only way to reflect the true nature of God, according to verse 40, is that God is a God of order, and that's for everything in the church to be done decently and in order. Fitting and orderly characterizes both the church and her God. Now, 
As I think about this issue of discernment in our day and the topic of trying to have these transcendental experiences with God, I'm reminded of an article I read recently by Rosaria Betterfield where she shares some words from Thomas Brooks. You know, we're redefining biblical words these days. Sometimes people use the word born again, but you know what they mean? What they mean by that is not personally coming to the end of yourself and your sin and asking Jesus to forgive you by what he did at the cross. Being born again is now being reinterpreted to mean coming to grips with your personal truth, some kind of personal insight. Forsaking sin doesn't mean forsaking your personal sin. It rather means don't offend unbelievers with God's word. Finding liberty in Christ gets reinterpreted to mean doing whatever your feelings dictate. And so she quotes Thomas Brooks in his descriptions of false teachers. False teachers are people pleasers. They preach to please the ear, not to profit the heart. May it never be. To be sure, the things that we have talked about today if we were designing our worship service in order to please people, we would conveniently ignore some verses, would we not? Rather than try to deal with them and understand them as best we can. False teachers will often use therapeutic language to describe transgression of sin, and they see sin as something that requires sympathy rather than a savior. Brothers and sisters, we need a savior. Doesn't mean we don't love people. Doesn't mean we don't empathize or even sympathize with their their struggles. But we need a savior. False teachers are notable in casting dirt and scorn and reproach upon people and names and credits of Christ's most faithful ambassadors. It's very easy to identify the wrongs of people and to emphasize those. We need to be careful that we recognize who the real enemies of the cross of Christ are and reserve our greatest criticism for those rather than those who are members of the body of Christ. False teachers are venters of devices and visions of their own heads and hearts. It's easy for false teachers to lie about what the Bible actually says and then quote from their lies as though the Bible supports their deception. So, for example, there are people who today are trying to use the Bible to affirm same-sex relationships and would not... um, uh, in their affirmation, say that, the, that by that, that does, the, the Bible still believe. you know, they would still say that they believe in sin and repentance and redemption, but they redefine all of those so that the very words that they're using are redefined to mean something entirely different than what they are. As Jeremiah 14, 14 said, the Lord says to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. The Puritan Thomas Brooks says false teachers pass over the great and weighty things of the law and gospel and stand most on those things that are of the least moment, the least importance. And so while all people have incredible dignity and worth, and we ought to say that, uh, 
that isn't the most important message that we should preach. We need to say that sinners are lost and that Jesus saves us from our sin. And the dignity and worth you have by virtue of being made in the image of God has been marred by the fall and by your own sin. And the only answer, the only correction is faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and He will give you victory. Thomas Brooks says, false teachers cover and color their dangerous principles and soul impostures with a very fair speech and plausible pretenses with high notions and golden expressions. It's very easy for us to be deceived then when the person is eloquent. Eloquent does not equal true. Be careful of that. False teachers strive to win strive more to win over men to their opinions, not better them in their Christian walk. So the issue is not being able to, you know, just play with words, but actually to see life transformation. And then the last thing from Brooks, uh, false teachers make merchandise of their followers. They eye your goods more than your good. Be aware that everybody has a tendency to market something. And when you realize that people are selling you something, that can cause you an awareness, ah, my truth detector antenna are up. So I leave you with two questions. First, how can you grow in your discernment? How is it that each of us can grow in our discernment. First, we pray. We ask Jesus to help us. Secondly, we discuss. We discuss the issues of the day with one another, just like my dad did with us kids. We read the Bible. The first question we should ask about any issue is, what does the Bible say? And we do that in the community of brothers and sisters in Christ's church. Listen, the community that you have around you will do more to shape you than you imagine. You may think that you are an independent thinking moral agent. You are being operated on more than you imagine by the community that is around you. And so gather around you people who love Jesus and are ready to walk with Him. I'm not saying withdraw from people who don't love Jesus, engage them too. But if you spend all your time with a certain set of people who don't share biblical values, your discernment will be compromised, guaranteed. And so that's why our Pathways of Discipleship is so important here at East White Oak. Meeting together like we're doing right now in a large group. Gathering together in Bible fellowships where greater discussion can take place. Meeting in small groups where iron can sharpen iron and we can come to grips with the things that are truly true and have transcendental experiences with the living God. Second question. How can you grow in your experience with God? Well, again, those pathways are so valuable, aren't they? Of those three different sized groups. 
And then I would add our vital sign of being rooted in Scripture. The more you are rooted in Scripture, the more you know the Bible, the better you will be able to discern the things that are going on in this world. I love these questions that get asked of artificial intelligence. And when you ask them one question, artificial intelligence gives you an answer. And then if you say, oh, but I don't think that's true. Where is the proof of that? And artificial intelligence will say back to you, oh, yeah, I guess that's right. Or it will make up a journal article. It will make up a journal article. How will you know truth from error? It is by being rooted in Scripture. And the last thing I will say is something we're going to celebrate now, sharing in the Lord's table together. It is we experience the, the remembering of what Jesus has done for us in the bread and the cup that together we have a transcendental experience with God. We are meeting with the Lord in knowing that His Son has shed His blood for us and our sins are forgiven and our home is in heaven. And so this morning, I challenge you to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, valuing the importance of orderly worship and growing in discernment of truth from error. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these beautiful words of Scripture that tell us how the first century church had some problems and how they were resolved. Help us as a church so to grow Help us to seek not our own spiritual, personal spiritual development as much as we would seek the building up of the body. Help us, Lord, to grow in our discernment and to grow in our experience with God together. And in this moment where we remember the Lord's death at the table of the Lord, help us to know you are right here with us. May this be a holy moment that we celebrate together. In Jesus' name, amen.